Oh, wow. Sometimes you just, uh, you have these nights like this and you think, who can even preach into an environment like this except the tracking's already laid? But it's like, how do you follow that up? You know, Yuri was talking about the kingdom of God. It's one of my favorite things to preach about. I didn't come here to preach on the kingdom of God, but as he was kind of doing all that, I was scrolling through my notes thinking, <laughs> should I at the last minute do a pivot here and talk about the kingdom of God? I had something else I was going to talk about that's more related to our healing and deliverance theme, but I, I'm tempted. I am sorely tempted. <laughs> And I think I'm going to do it. Because um, today at the leadership meeting, we were talking about, I think a, a one-sentence summary would be the calling of God on this fellowship and what you guys are about. And, of course, we have some visitors present, but when I make that comment, I'm specifically talking to the, uh, the people of a Freedom Fellowship Church, or FFC, since nobody uses full words anymore. And I want to, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually change channels. I had, a, I had something completely different I wanted to talk about, but it just seems like after that worship set, and after Yuri's uh, words about the kingdom of God, it just seems like the, <laughs> the right thing to do. So there's a lot of people today, particularly in academic circles and beyond, who believe that there's a dichotomy, and we might even say a disparity, an opposition, uh, between the message of Jesus and the message of Paul. And a lot of these so-called scholars, and we might call them pundits if, if we're secular life, oh, I totally forgot to do the merch pitch. Well, forget that anyway. You should buy it all there. Um, so many think there's this dichotomy and disparity, this opposition between Jesus and Paul. And to boil all those arguments down into something that's you know, usable in a sermon in a church, um, they say that Jesus preached the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but Paul preached the church. And uh, I respectfully disagree. Because the fact is the kingdom of God can be seen as a theme, as a topic throughout Paul's teaching, both in the book of Acts and in key points in his letters to the churches. Paul was preaching the kingdom just like Jesus preached the kingdom. And I want to say that one of the early discoveries that I had, I, I learned this in the Australian revival, is that when we make a kingdom declaration, the kingdom breaks out. And it, it doesn't take much. You just say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you don't just say it and like let it lie there limply. It's, when we say this, this is the declaration of somebody who's been commissioned and sent. It's the, it's the words of a herald. And uh, the kind of the origin of all of that comes out of the words of John the Baptist. But even more, when Jesus came, he preached the kingdom of heaven. And again, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, these are, these are interchangeable terms. Kingdom of God is more for the uh, Greek-speaking Gentile world. Ohio, <laughs> and uh, kingdom of heaven is more for the Hebrews, the Jews. Um, so this isn't a messianic synagogue, so we'd probably be safer to say kingdom of God, but you can use either one. 
And don't get tripped up if I change my language back and forth between the two. Um, but there's no deviation between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught. And when Jesus sent out his own disciples, so John preached it, then Jesus preached it, and then Jesus, when he sent out the 12, he said, as you go, say this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when we say that, you know, we, we, you can say anything and it can have no effect to it. I mean, if you're in a marriage or you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know what it is to say, yeah, I love you. And they're like, I don't, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> well, you could say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> sort of dribbles off your chin. But when you make a kingdom proclamation, it's like a clap of thunder. It'll divide the atmosphere. It'll split the room. And, uh, and that's really what Jesus is saying. He wants you to have confidence and assertion in making a kingdom declaration. So this idea of the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand is right in the center of uh, Paul's preaching and teaching as well. So there is no deviation, and the scholars are wrong, as they often are because so much of modern scholarship is oriented towards essentially trying to prove that the Bible's wrong and uh, undermining its authority. This is part of why the church is in such a terrible state because so many of our churches have leaders, pastors that are leading them, guiding them, who have been through seminaries or university training or whatever it is, that the whole purpose of it was to undermine the authority of the word of God such that they themselves as leaders have no confidence in what they are sent to do. When I got my MBA, you know, part of what they taught us was modern marketing theory and modern capital markets theory. This is the best and current edge thinking on, you know, these matters. And if you're in a good business school, you learn things like option theory and, you know, how to price the value of a particular situation. And, you know, marketing is all about your branding and positioning and all that. And, you know, at the end of the day, no corporation is going to hire somebody into a senior level finance role who doesn't believe in modern capital markets theory. And so, as a result, um, it's been proven again and again to be the nearest approximation to reality that we have to the way capital markets behave, and similarly with marketing and whatnot. Well, what's happened is because we're not actually teaching the Word of God the way it's meant to be taught, uh, we have people across the board running churches who have no confidence in what they're sent to do, and as a result, they're, they're literally flying the plane into the side of a mountain. And that's our problem, in a nutshell. Well, after visiting many Galatian churches on his first missionary journey, and just for you know, a bit of recall, the, the Bible tells us that Paul and um, Barnabas were two of the five eldership team at the church in Antioch. Now, there are several Antiochs in the Bible, but this particular one is kind of towards the western side of Turkey in the southern part of Turkey, kind of north of Lebanon, and it says in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then it lists them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, we have to be careful with that word because of the society we live in. But Niger in Latin is not meant to be that other word that sounds pretty close to what I said. It simply means black. So this is a multiracial leadership team. And so he was called Niger because he was a black man. So there's no problem with black leadership in the church. 
Um, maybe his nickname was Blackie. I don't know. They, they didn't have the sensibilities that we have today. If you did that today, you might get in a lot of trouble. But that's what they called him, Simeon Niger. And then we have Lucius of Cyrene. Well, Cyrene's on the north coast of Africa, so this guy's an Arab, and he's probably dark brown in color. And then we have Menaean, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's an interesting thing right there, because if he's a lifelong friend of Herod, you would have thought that this guy would be as duplicitous and slippery as they come. But somehow God had gotten a hold of him, maybe because he'd seen what Herod's life had become, and he had turned to the Lord. But that means if he's a friend of Herod, he's an Edomite, which means he's kind of a lighter brown. He's not dark ebony brown. And then Saul. And Saul's a Jewish man from Tarshish, and so that would mean he's kind of the color of a Turk. And so he's kind of a, somewhere in a medium brown. So we've got a black guy, a medium, a dark brown guy, a medium brown guy, a light brown guy, and a single white guy. That's your leadership team. Well, there's your, there's your solution to racial harmony right there, right? We, we, just, we kind of don't worry about the skin color, and we look for character and gifting, and we go after that. But anyway, so these guys are praying, and the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then it says, verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they went to Cyprus. Who sent them out? Men or God? Yes. The Holy Spirit summoned them in the midst of the fasting and the prayer. But the church leadership acknowledge that this was of the Lord. By the way, after Paul and Barnabas are gone, we now have a church that has only black, dark brown, and medium brown leadership. Nothing wrong with that. Just, you know, it, I mean, if we just read the Bible, it kind of straightens out a lot of the problems that we have in our society right now. By the way, does everybody remember that Moses had a black wife? And um, for opposing that, uh, the first maybe incidence of racism in the Bible, God struck Miriam with leprosy for daring to make this an issue. There's a lot of churches that maybe have walked in that for years that need to rethink it because we have the scripture example. But let's keep going with this kingdom of God thing because I'll get down a rabbit trail. <clears throat> so off these two go, and the first thing they do is they head into an area of modern Turkey that was then known as Galatia. And they plant a series of churches over a fairly wide geography. And he, he revisited those many churches. And Paul decides he's going to, to go on a new expedition. He's trying to expand the frontiers of the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel the invasion of God's kingdom. That's a good surrogate for the word gospel. Never mind all this good news stuff, God loves you. That's true, but that's not what it meant in its original context. So think more like the Allied Expeditionary Force. Think about we're, we're bringing the kingdom into pockets and places that it's never been before. If you have that idea, then you'll, then you'll be doing much better. And so in Acts chapter uh, 16, it says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which was a Roman province, it's not what we today think of as Asia. We're not talking about China and Japan and the Philippines and Southeast Asia. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a region <clears throat> of Western Turkey. Uh, think of a state, maybe, in the United States to just get your head in the right space. 
and it's called Asia. And so they want to go there, but the Holy Spirit says, no, you can't do that. Don't go there. Now, I don't think that means that God would never go there. I think it's just more a matter of his timing. Divine timing dictates not now. Maybe they're not ready. Or maybe there's something else that has to happen in the government or who knows what. But anyway, they're not given a reason. They're just told no. So when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So again, second closed door. Now, many of us would say when the door is closed, we just sort of, I don't know, sit down and God's not in it. So I'm going to sit here and watch football. By the way, who won today? I didn't hear about that one. So the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, you wouldn't know where these places are unless you've studied your Bible maps. But essentially, they're in the center of Turkey, and they're trying to go up this way, and boom, they get bumped back. So they're like, well, let's try that. No, that doesn't work either. And so they come this way, and then they descend out of the coastal plateau of Turkey, kind of come down, and they get to this place called Troas, which is the Greek name of Troy. It's the site of the Trojan War, which had, at the time this is being described was already 1,200 years ago. So they go down to Troy, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. I think it's interesting it's a vision, because that means he wasn't asleep. He didn't have a dream. He was keeping watch. He was keeping vigil in his prayer, and he was praying about what to do. And this vision appears, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So it begins. This is really... This one story right here is why you are sitting here listening to this sermon. Because if it weren't for this single event on that night in the city of Troy, or what was left of it, the ruins of Troy, again, it was 1,200 years before then, 3,200 years ago now. If it weren't for that one vision, who knows when Christianity would have come to Europe. But because of this vision, they book passage the next day, they cross the sea, they land in Philippi, And now it begins in earnest. And in Philippi, they have an instant success, seemingly. They go down to the river to pray. They meet Lydia. She's a relatively wealthy, successful merchant woman. She sells purple clothing. This is obviously only for the nobility in those days. Nobody else wore purple clothing. So she kind of mixes and mingles with the upper crust of society. By definition, that's her clientele. And so they, they meet her when they go down to the river to pray, and she's come down there to you know, do some dyeing and washing and whatnot. And they have some other excitement. You know, she, she gives her heart to the Lord, appears to become the leader of the first church in Europe. Um, people are added to that congregation, and Paul begins his ministry in Philippi, which at the time was a major Roman provincial center. And... Um, They, along the way, have the experience of a slave girl who speaks up and says, these men are servants of the Most High God. They are telling you the way to be saved. And it says Paul was vexed by this. And after many days, and only after many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, the evil spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. 
But when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Well, Yuri said it, when the kingdom comes, there will be conflict. You know, when Jesus used to preach, he used to tell people, count the cost. Count the cost. And if you don't want to pay the price, don't follow me. I think in America for a long time, because of the um, preponderance of Christian sentiment here, people didn't always have to count the cost of what it meant to be a Christian. You sort of went along with the flow, and Christianity became the go-to social group. And so churches were through the land, and it had, a, on one hand, very salutary effect, because in general, a lot of the wickedness and licentiousness that we see today was restrained due to the influence of the church. So far, so good. But on the other hand, it was easy to, to sneak by, and as long as you didn't break ranks too much, you kind of went along with the sort of dominant themes of society, you could be mistaken for a Christian because there was no price to pay. That's all changed. We've come into a time now, most people don't realize maybe how big the sea change has been, but there's, but there's been a sea change in America. Um, part of it was declared by none other than Barack Obama during his presidency when he said America is not a Christian nation. We, I think, collectively in the evangelical world took this as a uh, slap at us and maybe he meant it that way, but I think more than anything, he was reflecting reality. America is not a nation that runs its affairs by the, the principles of the Bible. And the biggest share of people in America, even if they think they're Christians, even if they go to church, and there might be more of that going on in Ohio than, say, in my home state of California, where only 3% of the population goes to church. 3%. By the way, we are the thought leader of the nation. So that tells you where things are going, absent a revival. So I think Obama was just, again, we didn't like what he said, but I think he was just speaking truth. And of course, he began to implement policies that to most of us who are believers, <clears throat> the only right word for the things that he did, he was an immoral president. And we don't use words like that in the pulpit anymore. They're viewed as judgmental. But, but he was. He was an immoral president. He might have been a, a, a president who was good in many ways. You know, King Ahab was one of the most successful kings Israel ever had. But he was married to Jezebel. And he brought in the worship of, you know, other gods from other nations. And he gets an F report card despite his many outstanding secular achievements. I think Obama would be a president in that category. I think our current president would be in that category. And so, you know, we need to recognize that the tide has turned and kind of the bellwether of that was the Obergefell decision which enshrined what we now call gay marriage. And now we have this um, new marriage act that's already been passed by the House and the Senate ran it through a couple of days ago and there is zero doubt that Joe Biden's going to sign it into law. And with that, the entire understanding of marriage will be codified into federal law and it will be very, very difficult. So not anything can be overturned in time, but it will be very difficult to change it. And what I'm telling you with all that is, if you didn't count the cost before, you'd better do it now. And if you want to get off the boat now, this would be a good time. I'm not trying to get people to leave the faith, but I am trying to get them to understand that we are, in fact, engaged in a spiritual war, and it is, it is for the heart and soul of this nation. And the only solution is if we get some kind of a revival from the Lord.
It could take a lot of different forms. There have been different revivals in different eras in this country, but whatever exactly the Lord chooses to give us, that literally is our only hope at this point. Well, Paul's in Philippi. The slave girl gets converted, and it says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. If you're a Christian, you may find, not because you're seeking to be civilly disobedient, but you may find in the coming days that just the mere practice of your faith and the adherence to the standards of what has historically been our faith, it will cost you dearly. It may cost you your livelihood. It could cost you your home. You might be thrown into prison for what is now considered to be hate speech. This is contrary to the laws and customs of our society. And all of this has to do with the kingdom of God. So the crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, and most of you probably would have, you saw a flogging uh, acted out, and it's a horrific thing to watch, but beating with rods is just as bad. And in fact, it might be worse because the fact that they're using rods means that many of your bones would be, if they aren't broken, they're at least cracked. And, you know, they, they, as the rods come down because of the way the force of the rod is on your, on your flesh, your, your flesh might split open. And so there are these big, like, chasms in your back, your buttocks, your thighs, over your shoulders. They might even hit you on the head. You might have concussions. Um, but this is the nature of a beating with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And then about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We read that, and we don't even think about what it means. There's no Advil or Tylenol here. There's no Valium. There's no painkiller. And you're in the inner prison. You're in the prison within a prison, and you're sitting on your backside that's already been beaten and is bruised, it's leaking uh, sebaceous fluid, uh, you know, your back is split open, and, you know, all you can kind of do is move uncomfortably from one place to the other in the pain that you have, and your body is stiffening up, and it's late, and they're singing. They're singing. I don't think most of us would be singing. I think we'd be complaining and moaning and crying, but... Anyway, Paul learned an important lesson, and he reflects it in his letter to the Philippians that he wrote later. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. He learned that these three are inseparable. You won't know the power of his resurrection without sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul did. He'd seen some of that resurrection power when he delivered that slave girl, and he would see more of it down the road, but he had to go through that in order to get to the next level of victory. We don't tend to talk about that because of the hyper-grace influence in the churches these days, but this is what happened. Well, in the morning, 
<laughs> they find out, oops, these guys are Roman citizens. We weren't supposed to do that to them. And so they want to escort them out of the city. And uh, the magistrate sent the police, let those men go. But the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and they now want us to go out secretly. No, let them come out themselves and take us. And the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. <laughs> Sorry guys, just kidding. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Now I suppose, absent a miraculous healing, and there's no mention of one, that when Paul and Silas left that city, they were kind of like this. right? They probably have assistance just to make their way along. It wouldn't feel a lot better to be on a mule or a horse or even in a chariot if they had one because of the bumps and the... So it's slim comfort. But anyway, they go on to their next stop in Thessalonica. Paul has learned his first lesson of kingdom breakthrough and kingdom warfare, and that is that if we want to know the power of the resurrection, then we also have to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And somehow in the union of those two, we come to know him better. We might have that coming in our time. We haven't ever had that in America, not, not to any meaningful degree. There's been a little bit of, in the, when the colonies were pretty dark prior to the Great Awakening, but for the most part, we've not known that in the history of America, but it could be coming. Well, they go on to Thessalonica, and that's recounted in Acts 17. And uh, it says they passed through a couple of cities to get there. But they get to Thessalonica, and there's a synagogue of the Jews. Just like Jesus had done, it says Paul went in, and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he had a three-week preaching tour there in Thessalonica in the synagogue, in the local church going through towns and villages, just like Jesus. And he explained in proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the anointed king, that's what Christ means, to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that anointed king. Some were persuaded, and they joined with Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. He had a move of God. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love the way the King James says it, lewd fellows of a baser sort. <laughs> they formed a mob and they set the city into an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd and when they could not find them they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of the king, Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. There is another king. It's higher even than our government. This is why in the years of the Cold War, of the Iron Curtain, those countries wanted to suppress the church because the church had the temerity to say there is a higher power than the secular power. And it's found in Jesus and we're going to serve him. And they said, oh no, not so fast. You saw a little bit of what that looked like with the COVID thing, but let me tell you, that's the warm-up act. That's not actually the full deal. 
So I'm, I'm talking about kingdom proclamation, and I'm talking about when we say there is a king who is over the presidency, who's over the White House, who's over the Senate and the, uh, the, the House of Representatives, over the Supreme Court, over all the apparatus of government, who's over the, the government of Ohio, there is a king, and we have to give fealty to him and follow his ways and his customs. So help us, God, here I stand. When we say that, there might be a considerable pushback. It hasn't been the case in the past, so we've never seen it in America. But the, the, the tide has shifted. The, the battle has turned. And we now live in a world where Christianity is, is the minority view. And most of the power structures, most of what Lance Wall now calls the seven mountains, are held by people who are diametrically opposed to everything we believe. And that means that we have a mission in front of us. And it doesn't matter if you're a mom with a nursing baby or you're a pastor in the pulpit, or you're a business executive, or you're a truck driver, or you are an architect or a plumber. We have one single mission. It's simple to articulate, and it's incredibly difficult and complex to carry out, and it's exactly what Paul had. Paul redirected Paul, God redirected Paul into Europe with one single objective, convert the continent. And we seek the reconversion of the West. Nothing less. That is our mission. That is our goal. And unto this we cling, so help us God. We may die in the effort, but if we do, we will die in the service of the King. We seek the reconversion of the West. Because the West has become a haunt of jackals. It has become a place of cursing and vileness and evil. Our mores and our sexual ethics are immoral in the eyes of holy God himself. The things that we do in our customs as it pertains to everybody, from the immigrants to the unwed mothers, are abhorrent to holy God. And he will hold this nation to account just as he did ancient Israel. In fact, in the days of Israel, when, when ba Babylon had surrounded Jerusalem and was about to invade to take the city, they're under siege. They're at the point of capitulation. All the prophets were saying, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. No evil will befall this city because the Lord's temple was here. And then Babylon came in. And Jeremiah said the reason is because they have become a place of hissing and horror to the Lord. And therefore he will not rise to defend this city anymore. The only hope for America is that we turn and we repent of all of that. We could do it in this church, but it's got to be a bigger repentance than that. It's got to be societal. It's got to take a nation. And it's got to move beyond this nation to overtake the entire culture of the West. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and England, they're the other countries primarily that speak our language. They need to come into this. All of Western Europe that used to be Christian needs to come into this. All of Eastern Europe, some of which is more Christian than we are, some of which is not, they need to come into this. This is a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-generational thing that we are calling for. We seek the reconversion of the West, nothing less. And so... Paul is in Thessalonica, and they recognize it. They said, these men act against the decrees of Caesar, and they declare another king. Yes, we do. 
We will submit to the government of men because the scripture instructs us to do it right up to the point where it may contradict the laws of God. But we won't rise up in violence. Cut us down if you must. But we hold to a higher standard, and that's the standard of Jesus. So in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, in describing his ministry among the Thessalonians, Paul writes to them to remind them of what had happened during that time when he was in Thessalonica. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, well, verse 4 also, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you, because our gospel came to you not only in word. We weren't just a bunch of talking heads. We didn't just talk a good game. We came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. And you further know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And therefore you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Why was there much affliction in Thessalonica? Because of that blowback, because of that pushback, because of that that antithesis, that that antagonism towards the word of the risen king that they had brought in Thessalonica. When they pulled Jason out of his house, they were looking for Paul, but then the next thing they did was they looked for every single Christian they could find who had followed this teaching. And so you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and with that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We don't know where these areas are, most of us. We can study maps and learn about them. Macedonia is what today we call the Balkans. It's all of those countries. Montenegro, what was once Yugoslavia, um, Croatia, all of those countries up there and the southeastern shoulder of Europe. And then Achaia is the entire of the Greek peninsula. There was a revival that broke out from Thessalonica that literally shook two entire regions of the Roman Empire in the midst of their affliction and difficulty, in the midst of the opposition that they faced. And he said, and so not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Everybody's talking about you and the faith that you have. It's that kind of overcoming faith that the Lord wants to bring the church to once again. And they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now that is kingdom preaching. And we don't hear a lot of that, but Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. we got a lot of work to do. But that's what happened. And so we should seek the word, uh, we should seek the word that we preach, the, uh, the gospel to be authenticated in the scriptures. It should be authentic to the written word of God. For that to be true, we have to know the word of God well enough to actually benchmark ourselves against it. Much of the modern church doesn't have that. So we're, there's a rediscovery of the word of God. We seek the gospel to be proclaimed in power, the demonstrable manifestation of God's power. You saw it on exhibit last night. The Lord's going to break out more powerfully tonight, both because we laid a foundation yesterday, but because of that worship set tonight. That was just the 15,000-foot runway we need to get the B-52 in the air. 
The gospel we proclaim must be empowered by the Holy Spirit, working alongside of them as Jesus had promised would happen in Acts 1.8. And with that, they, Paul said, full conviction, such that when we share the word of God, people come under conviction. Now, they may not call it that. They might call it condemnation, but we're not seeking to condemn anybody. But they sense, they feel the, the, the nearness of the kingdom of God coming near to them, summoning them to leave behind the immorality and the wickedness that they have embraced, and they think they're okay. This is what we are going to do. Do you want to do that? Do you want to go on that journey? I'm telling you what's on the front of the bus. If you don't like this bus, don't get on it. This is what a kingdom bus looks like. And it comes with full conviction so that men's hearts and women's hearts are turned to the living and true God. And so out of this, what we learn out of Paul's experience in Thessalonica, if the first one is that suffering joins us to Jesus such that we experience the power of his resurrection, now we understand that that power grounds people in their faith. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. He said, because our gospel came in this way, we know that you are among the chosen. Now the Calvinists would not like that because John Calvin said that the elect can't know who they are. Paul would beg to differ. So when we have a demonstrable expression of the kingdom of God, evidentiary faith that's right in the face of unbelief, they can choose to deny it, they can choose to suppress it, but they can't actually in their minds say that didn't happen. That's why Jesus had to rise from the dead. It was an undeniable thing. The gospel is rooted in, in space and time, and we need a gospel that's evidentiary in that way. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.8 that the word went forth from the Thessalonians to these areas of Macedonia and Achaia. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul says... We proclaim to you the gospel of the kingdom. There it is again. I hate it when Paul contradicts the theologians. I'm just turning back to that passage so I can read that single uh, short verse to you. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there's a lifestyle issue here. We're to be holy people. We're to be set apart people. We're to be consecrated. We're not to look like the culture around us. We've spent most of the last 30 years flushing down the drain, the Christian inheritance that we had received as a society, chasing the megachurch model and trying to make the church more and more like the world, hoping that they would be attracted to us. And they said, I don't need to flange Jesus onto my worldliness in order to be worldly. I'll just go be worldly without the religiosity. And with that, we watered down the gospel, and in 30 years, we lost the culture. Yes, this is true. Well, this is the kind of fruit Jesus would like to see. You're getting a picture of it right out of the Bible. I'm putting it in front of you because I believe this is the call of God on this church. That's what I told the fellowship of the leaders this morning. I said some other things too, but I'm giving you the kernel of it. And so... This is the summons that the Lord has over you as a people. After Thessalonica, they had to hustle Paul out of the city lest he be killed. And so he fled to Berea. This is found in Acts 17, verses 10 and 15. He gets to Berea and he starts to minister there. 
It says the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So, in Berea, the results were good, but they were muted. They were blunted due to the opposition. And so we would say probably that the results, the the outcome was inconclusive. Um, There was one new disciple who's mentioned at the very end. His name is Sopater. And, uh, and beyond that, we don't know much more about the, uh, the Berean situation. And from there, he goes to Athens. And Athens is in many commentators' minds, many scholars' minds, the high point of Paul's ministry because there he engaged with the majority culture. He quoted from their own poets, and he talked about how we live and move and have our being in, in God, which is true, but there was no breakthrough in Athens. There, it says that, There was one man named Dionysus, and there were a few women who believed. But there's no letter to the Athenians, and there's no church planted there. And Paul ultimately goes to Corinth, and this is where things get really interesting. Now, if you know the map of the the Mediterranean, Paul has described an arc like this. He'd started here in the center of Turkey. He'd tried to go that way to the northeast, then north. He ultimately is directed to go to the northwest. He gets the vision. He crosses the ocean. He comes to Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica, comes down to Berea, to Athens, and then he gets to Corinth. So we've got this big arc that he has been uh, describing or subtending around the Aegean Sea. And after Athens, Paul goes to Corinth. And it says, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, Interestingly, that's kind of from that same area in Turkey. Different, different state, different, different province, but same idea. But he had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we see an anti-Jewish pogrom in operation, but it's a divine confluence, and these two meet with Paul. And it says, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, while he's there, Paul seemingly has a crisis. And it says in uh, Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Now, Paul has been in other synagogues, but we have no record of him converting the leader of the synagogue. And He had already tried preaching, and some are opposing and reviling him. I'm back in verse 6. So he's shaken out his garments, and he says, I'm innocent of your blood. It's on your own heads. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. I will no longer try to preach to the Jews. And so he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, who is a worshiper of God. He's a God-fearer, even though he doesn't really know the Lord. And his house was right next door to the synagogue. I would submit to you this is a gutsy move. You've had opposition from Jews in Philippi. You've had opposition from Jews in Thessalonica. You've had opposition from Jews in Berea. 
you kind of skipped that one in Athens because you went soft pedal there. And now I'm right next door to the synagogue and I'm preaching there and I happen to convert the pastor. I, I lead the leader of the synagogue to faith. That's what it says. And a lot of times we read these stories, we don't actually realize what's going on here. But Crispus comes to the Lord together with his entire household. It's bad enough that the rabbi or pastor, take your pick, um, has converted, but now his whole family has joined, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized, and I suppose that Paul must have had some concerns about what this might result in, given his previous experiences. In fact, he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Jesus the crucified king, Jesus the anointed king. He went back to preaching kingdom and him crucified. That's what I decided to do. And when did he do it? Right after Athens. It's a really important point. Athens is the analog of the megachurch seeker-sensitive movement. And now the church has to return to a Corinthian-type ministry that is kingdom-centric and filled with power. But there will be a price. He says, my message and my speech, or my speech and my message, were not in plausible words of wisdom. Now, obviously, they were intelligible. But he wasn't principally trying to engage with that upper level of the Greek intelligentsia any longer but rather in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, that's what Paul had decided to do. But again, he had some concerns about it. I think he was very worried about what the blowback might look like. And so the Lord comes to Paul one night in a vision. I'm back in Acts. And he says to him again in a vision, Paul's keeping vigil. He's not having a dream. He's not asleep. He's staying up praying. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people who are in this city. But Jesus Christ had to encourage Paul in the mission that he was on, telling him, don't be afraid. Whatever it is you're going to face, you can do it with me. Kind of reminds me of the line from Gladiator. Any of you men ever been in the army? We have a much better chance of surviving whatever comes through that door if we stay together. Remember that scene? So Jesus himself had to strengthen Paul because he was frightened after his experiences in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and even Athens. It was, I mean, he didn't get beaten there, but it was just kind of, meh. It wasn't what he was used to seeing. And so he, he wrote that he preached and taught demonstrating the spirit and in power. This is why we need a power-filled ministry. This is why we need healing ministry. It's why we need deliverance. We need it to minister to the, to the people who are broken and lost. But there's a bigger vision involved in this. We care about those individuals. I don't ever want to make them like currency in our, uh, in our exchange. Okay, we're not, we're not just trading people like a pair of shoes. Amos talks about that. We're not doing that. But there is something in the demonstration of what we can bring to set people free that will get the attention of those who are willing to hear. That's why we need the kingdom. And Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians, 
He says the kingdom of God does not consist in words and talk, but in power. Power is really, it's what we have got to get back to. And there's no direct, linear, easy path. I mean, we can pray for impartation and all that, and that's good. But there's also this thing of the cultivation of power in our own lives through fasting, through pulling vigil, which I just showed you twice Paul was doing it, staying up late to pray and seek the Lord, setting aside all the distractions and foolishness of the modern age and saying, this is what I live for, the kingdom of God and nothing else. This is my sole reason for existence. When I'm done doing that and the Lord considers me to have run the race, he'll call me home. But until then, this is what I am all about. That doesn't, by the way, mean you have to quit your job. It just means you change the focus of why you do your job. You are funding your own ministry. That's what you're doing. Paul later told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he gives a list of things that they were doing uh, or had been doing that they apparently started reverting to because he says, I warn you as I warned you before. So you didn't listen. Let me tell you again, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It might ultimately prevent your entry into the kingdom. You could literally be denied entrance to heaven. But one thing it will surely do is in this lifetime, it will shut down the flow of power and kingdom reality that you were intended to live in and walk in. He's got a whole bunch of stuff on that list. It's worth looking at. We're not going to because I'm trying to keep moving. But anyway, the key learning from Corinth is this one. It's not necessary to feel powerful in order to be powerful because, as he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his power is perfected in our weakness. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be confused. It's okay, Pat, to feel inadequate. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Well, on his first missionary journey, the one where he planted all those churches in Galatia, Paul had told the Lystran Christians that it was through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. There he goes again. I hate it when Paul contradicts the theologians. These Lystrans were Turks. They weren't even Greeks. And he had similarly written to the Galatian Christians that indulging the flesh would keep them from inheriting the kingdom of God. So if we're going to live a life of kingdom power, we must also understand that we are called to a life of holiness. Not sanctimoniousness. That's sort of holier than thou and gets very legalistic. But we are wholly given over to the Lord and the things that offend him we stay away from because we know they will chase the dove away. Well, as I said in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, no, I didn't say it here, I said it this morning, that carnality that was going on in Corinth and also that was on evidence among the Galatian churches is what kept Corinth from having the same kind of regional impact that the Thessalonians had in their outreach into Macedonia and Achaia. And he had warned them, but they didn't heed it. And so Corinth received, maybe they were 30-fold and they could have been a 60-fold. And thus closes the second missionary journey of Paul. Paul learned some very critical lessons. I called them out as we went city by city so you would understand what these key learnings are and they have direct applicability to our lives today. But then after he's been home for a while, we get to his last missionary journey. And so he launches out. And in Acts chapter 19, we have a description of Paul's 
ministry in Ephesus. This is the greatest revival that Paul would lead in his lifetime. And, um, and it's really here that we have a template for how to catalyze regional outpourings. And that's, all of that was preamble. I want to talk about how are we going to do this. I want to talk about bringing the kingdom. It starts with a kingdom proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm saying that into the room, and I am saying it with faith. I expect the kingdom to break out here tonight because I have told you the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now, and the kingdom is breaking in. But I want to show you how you're going to take this from here to there. How are you going to hit Akron? How are you going to go to Worcester? How are you going to go to, I don't know, whatever towns are in this area. I was kind of looking at the map in the hall, and I can't remember all of your counties and townships and cities, but you guys know them. The Lord has his eye on every single one of them. And in fact, the eye of the Lord is still running to and fro through the earth, seeking those whose hearts are turned toward him. And he intends to harvest the earth. He wants to do this, but he needs laborers. Are you willing to be a laborer? Are you willing to be counted as one of those workers in the Lord's harvest fields? Well, near the beginning of his third missionary journey in Acts 19... Paul traveled through modern Turkey and he descended from the high plateau to the coastal plain and he comes to Ephesus and it says there that he found about 12 men. Let's read it. Acts 19 verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the high country or the inland country, the highlands, and he came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples. These were people, they're called disciples for a reason. This is the same word disciple that we see in the Gospels. These are people who are followers of Jesus. They're quite dedicated to what they believe, and they're doing their level best to, to implement that. We could say they're practitioners of the craft. But these particular disciples, they don't have the whole enchilada. But Luke appears to be signaling something because he says he found some disciples and Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What Luke appears to be saying consciously is Jesus had 12 apostles, and Paul had about 12. Now, about 12 means it wasn't 12. I don't know if it was 11 or 10, or maybe 13 or 14. But there, Luke is trying to consciously draw us back to the idea of Jesus sending the 12. And what he's saying is, these become the apostles of Paul. We don't tend to use language like that. But they are ones who will be sent out by Paul with the objective that everything he had learned in his previous missionary journeys in Galatia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, and in Corinth is now going to be rolled up. This is the high point of his ministry. Paul's about to go out with a bang. This is going to be, this is going to be the epic explosion of the kingdom of God. It's the detonation point. And with it, he is laying out for us the template, the pattern that Paul used. Would you like to sit in Paul's ministry school and learn how to catalyze a regional outpouring that will shake Ohio and Michigan? Would you like to know how to do that? Okay, that's what he's going to do. So it says 
here. They, he asked them about the Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Now, they, he'd already written letters saying, hey, you know, if you believe in Jesus, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So he understood, Paul got this, I mean, he wrote the theology. He understood that there was some modicum of the Holy Spirit, some sealing that had gone on, but there's more. Paul was telling him there's more, and what you got that brought you to salvation is not enough to give you the traction you need to impact one of the most prominent pagan cities in the Eastern Empire that is safeguarded by the goddess Diana. And we are going to bring her down because the kingdom will yield to nobody and nothing, not even this goddess Diana, who is a warrior, who is a sex goddess, who is the goddess of the moon the second most powerful light in the sky right after Apollo. All of it is going to bow. That's what Paul is proclaiming because he is a kingdom man. And he says, you guys don't yet have what you need in order to take that message into this context, but I'm going to get you ready. It reminds me of the scene, I mentioned this with the leaders today, of Mel Gibson's movie, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And Mel Gibson takes over the 7th Cavalry and they're kind of a slob unit, and everybody's undisciplined, and nobody's ready for anything. And Mel Gibson calls them to order, and they're standing there. And Mel Gibson says, how many of you men like training? And nobody raises their hand, and he goes, he has a new sergeant major with him. He says, well, Sergeant Plumley and I, we love it. He says, so we're going to train, train, train. And he says, and when we go into action... I will be the first man off the helicopter and the last one to leave. I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to lead you into battle and you men will be ready when you go. That's what Yuri's trying to do with fish. I like that name. Fits. Are you ready to get trained? Are you ready to be in that fight? This is the battle of the ages. We don't just happen to live in these times. We were selected to live in these times. So are you ready to rise to the occasion? So he finds these men, and the first thing that you need to catalyze a regional outpouring is a new revelation of God, a new encounter with God. Revelation isn't just head knowledge, it's experiential. It's the merging of the two. It's synergistic. They'd never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit, but they believed in Jesus. There's a lot of people in Ohio that are like that. Got them up and down this road right here, probably. So that's the first thing, that we bring this new revelation. And so once he proclaims to them what this thing of the Holy Spirit is and what it means to be baptized in the Spirit, they're like, we want that. And so he lays his hands on them after they've received this baptism in the name of Jesus and they receive a fresh anointing. And so it's not just a revelation, it's a new impartation. It's a fresh anointing that will come upon an entire group of people. Now listen, if Paul could do what I'm about to show you with about 12 men, we've got a few hundred here tonight, we could literally flip this entire state on its head if the, if the church gets engaged. It is literally possible to do this. I'll tell you something, I'm off script with this, but... But nevertheless, we, we went to an island in Indonesia one time, my friend and I, we were ministering as a, as a team, 
and we had a few believers with us as kind of the ministry team, but it wasn't enough for all that we had. And we went to this island, and just now I don't remember the name of the island even anymore. It was some wherever it was. Uh, but it had about 5,000 people living on the island. And in those meetings, there were 10 deaf people healed in front of the room. And, of course, this got people's attention. Um, and then right after that, we had one and then two and then three cripples healed. And they were walking. And suddenly the church started emptying out. And so I said to our translator, where are those people going? He goes, oh, they're going to get all their friends. <laughs> and so it wasn't long before people were coming back in. And this is Indonesia. It's a tribal society. It's not like America where everybody distrusts everybody. And, you know, we live in separate homes and the garage door goes up and comes down. I mean, they just kind of hang out together. It's an island culture. It's a very different way of living and, and doing life. But anyway, they all go. And by the way, Indonesia is a majority Muslim nation. And so most of the people in this area are Muslims. But they're going and telling their Muslim friends and neighbors, hey, 10 deaf people just got healed. Hey, three cripples just got healed. Why don't you come on down and see what's going on? And so they're bringing people down to the church and that island had um, the population was 5,000 people and the entire island turned to the Lord in a night in one night at one point we we there were the first thousand who came in we couldn't fit them in the church so we took them outside because it wasn't 20 degrees and we lined them up around the outside of the church and we just turned the ministry team loose on everybody, and then we went down the line. I personally did this with the translator, and I said, were you healed? And I said, don't, don't, if you were partially healed, don't count it. I want to know if you were totally healed. Every single person had been healed, and so the first thousand went and got the next couple thousand, and then they went and got the rest of them, and by the time the night was done, the entire island had turned to the Lord. Don't say it can't happen. That's unbelief. Don't say it can't happen. That's modernity speaking. Don't say it can't happen. That's your old pastor speaking. It ain't Yuri. Yuri's, Yuri's got blood in his eye and fire in his bones, right? So this fresh anointing, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Well, then it says he entered the synagogue. This is where he's run into trouble before. But Paul's at the place where he's like, I don't care anymore. I just, I just got to do this. And he preached for three months boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Three months of it. That's either 12 or 13 weekends and probably some midweek Bible studies to go with it. You know, special night. Paul will be here at the synagogue doing a special thing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, come on down and hear the word of God proclaimed. And so it says, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. Same kind of pushback that he'd experienced in other cities. And they spoke evil of the way before the congregation. And so he withdrew from the synagogue. He withdrew and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now that's a Greek name. And Tyrannus <clears throat> apparently ran a school of rhetoric. They've uncovered it. You go to Ephesus today, you can see the ruins of Tyrannus' school. It was about 150 yards down the street from the synagogue. So again, a rather cheeky move. But he's, he's proclaiming, and this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, again, don't think China, Japan, Southeast Asia, think this province of Asia, the, east, uh, the westernmost province in Turkey, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All means all. 
And they weren't just hearing some kind of schmarmy gospel message. Oh, you sweet little thing, you. You know, Jesus loves you so much. It wasn't just that. It was, there is a new king. His name is Jesus. He calls all men and women everywhere to repent. He will heal you of your diseases. He will deliver you of your demons. But you must turn from your idols to serve the living and true God. Come now. We could add to that, turn from your pornography, turn from your drugs, turn from your alcohol, turn from your cigarettes, turn from all of it. This is classic American revival preaching. Because there is a king, he is enthroned, and he will extend his hand. Because we make a kingdom declaration, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, I just gave you several keys right in a row out of that short passage. So step one was the new revelation. Step two was the fresh anointing. Step three is boldness. It says, Paul proclaimed boldly. A few years ago, before COVID, I was up in Canada, and we were doing a conference on evangelism. We had mm, a little more than we have here, but comparable. And we were doing online polling in the crowd. So we put a code up on the screen, text your answer to this question, to this number, and then it would automatically tabulate and we could display the results in a moment. So we did a quick poll. What's the number one thing that keeps you from evangelizing Canadian Christians? Now Canada's a lot like the U.S. And what we learned out of that instantaneous polling was that 97% of them, the number one reason they didn't evangelize is they were afraid. They were afraid of being viewed as intolerant. They were a few afraid of being viewed as somebody who pushes their views on somebody else. They were afraid that maybe the gospel wasn't as true as they thought it might be, as they had been told it was. They were afraid because they'd never actually seen anybody come to Christ, so they weren't entirely sure it was going to work if they tried. They all had their lists of things, but they were afraid. This says Paul reasoned boldly. I believe that the Lord wants to baptize all of the churches of America in boldness so that we will say like Paul and like, uh, excuse me, like uh, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, we will not be silent. You can tell us not to preach in this name, but we will not stop. On this point, we must honor God rather than men. So boldness is the third component of catalyzing a regional outpouring. And then right behind it, it says he reasoned and persuaded them about the kingdom of God. You do actually need to have your, your ducks in a row. You don't necessarily need to be a theologian, but you need to be persuasive and you need to be able to reason with people. And the single best way you're going to do that is with your own testimony. Because a man with an opinion is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. And if you simply tell what God did in your life and you can do it succinctly, that's enough. You don't have to be a theologian. Later on, you may buttress what you say with Scripture. Later on, you may want to learn more Scripture so you can reason from the Scriptures. But I assure you, most people in America don't know enough Bible to shake a thimble at. And consequently, you don't need to worry about coming up against some theologian who's going to shoot you down. You just tell your story. This is what Jesus did for me. This is how Jesus made a difference in my life. This is how I was lost, and this is how I got found. And even if you had a relatively good life and you just happened to grow up into faith... Your testimony still counts. You can simply say, you know what? I was spared all the wreckage and turmoil of my friends that went down that other path of drugs, sex, rock and roll, and alcohol. You have a testimony. Don't be afraid to share it. That's what the Gadarene demoniac did after he got delivered by Jesus, and the entire of the Decapolis turned out to hear Jesus when he came back. You have a power within you. It's called the power of your testimony, empowered by the living spirit of God who is within you. And if you've had that empowering impartation, then when you give that testimony, there will be fire on it. 
That's what God wants to do. All right, the fifth thing that Paul did, so we third was bold, fourth was persuasive. The fifth thing is he preached the kingdom of God. He did not flinch from the kingdom of God. And so with that, it's very simple. We can just tell people, you know, the kingdom is breaking in. God's power is here now, and he wants to change you. He wants to give you a new life. He wants to set you free of the things that bind you. And so if you want to say it in really colloquial, you'd say this in a street preacher kind of setting, maybe not here in Sunday church. But you might say, does your life suck? Would you like to unsuck it? <laughs> That'll get their attention. And you know what? People will put up their hands. Last summer... I went to the Bronx with Sean Foyt and with my friend Jay Koopman. And we're in my friend Fernando's church, and Sean was doing his Sean Foyt thing. And they said, hey, Ken, we want you to preach the, the message to the homosexuals in New York City. So they kind of pushed me to the front of the stage, and I said, right. I said, all you people out there, God loves you if you are gay. But he wants to set you free. Do you want to be free of your bondage? That's a more polite way of saying your life sucks. Do you want to unsuck it? Right? Do you want to be free of your bondage? Jesus will set you free if you will come forward now. And in that particular meeting, we had, I think it was around eight or nine dozen who came forward. And they were all here at the front of the of the stage, the ministry team swooped in on them. We called down the Holy Spirit on them, and you could see people getting delivered. They're vomiting, they're chucking their guts out, they're falling out in the Spirit. We followed them up. Almost every single person was completely set free just in that one encounter. Then Jay got up, and he said, all right, all of you who have drugs, I don't care what kind it is. There's an amnesty open tonight. Come up here and throw your drugs on the stage. And they all came forward, and they're throwing their hashish and their meth and whatever else, and it's all landing on the stage. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I hope the police don't show up here. But anyway, we gathered it all together and put it in the trash bin, and then we called down the Spirit again, and Jesus started breaking bondage to drugs. People who were enslaved to their addictions got free. This could happen in Ohio. It could even happen at the Ohio State University. It could happen in Ashland. It could happen in Oberlin. It could happen anywhere. Can you believe God for that? Can you see the Lord doing it? Because if you can see it, you can have it. I learned that from Mark Sharona. If you can see it, you can have it. Can you see it? Do you have it drilled into your mind that the kingdom will break in, people will be saved, and they will be delivered? God will give this into your hands. Jesus said, when you are clothed with power from on high. And it all started back there with that fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. All right, the sixth thing that we saw in this passage, so third was be bold, fourth was be persuasive, fifth was stay with the kingdom. The sixth was when they become stubborn and abusive, move on. Don't try to preach to those who are being this resistant. Just go find those who are willing. God will probably get to them later on. He'll circle back around. He's that way. But it's not your problem. You're moving with the Holy Spirit. And if they are quenching the Holy Spirit, they are quenching you. And Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out, if you go to one town and they do not receive you, shake out your clothes as a testimony against them and keep on moving. 
because you've got other places to go. So don't hesitate to move on. The seventh thing he did was he dug deep. He reasoned daily in Tyrannus' school about the kingdom of God, giving them lesson after lesson after lesson. And in one of the footnotes on that specific experience in Tyrannus's lecture hall, it says that Paul was speaking to them about the kingdom. Watch this. You think I preach long. From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every single day. Now, I guess they had potty breaks and probably a lunch break in there somewhere. But that's five hours of kingdom every single day. And he continued to do that for two years. I've got about 55 messages on the kingdom of God. I've written a, a couple of newer ones. But I don't have enough content to do two years at five hours a day on the kingdom of God. Paul's a rabbi, and I need to catch up with Paul. <laughs> Yuri, now you know your job assignment for fish. <laughs> Just go write a couple hundred messages on the kingdom of God. But you've got to dig deep. You've got to have, you've got to have foundations. Tall buildings need deep foundations. And then the eighth principle is it says this continued for two years so that all the residents heard the word of the Lord. Now, hang on. Let's think this through. Paul is preaching about the kingdom in Tyrannus' school from 11 to 4 every day. There are no interstate highways. There are no modern vehicles. There are no high-speed rail links. There are no airplanes. There's nothing like that. So how in the world is Paul going to get all through that region? He's not. He's going to move through the disciples who now understand that their whole reason for existence is to proclaim the kingdom of God in their daily existence. So if you're a guy who's delivering lumber from Lebanon to some inner city in Turkey, you take your wagon load of lumber, and as you get there, you talk to the guy who's buying the lumber about this King Jesus and how there's a revolution underway. That's the only way it would work. If you're going up the Bosporus, okay, you might catch a ship and you sail to the far side of the Black Sea and now you're over in eastern Turkey and so, you know, you do some preaching over there. If you're somebody who's carrying woven carpets, that was a thing back then, they still are, okay, you bring your carpet load and while you're trading carpets with whoever the merchant is in wherever, Izmir or something, and while you're doing all that, you are proclaiming the kingdom of God. It becomes part of your discussion. It becomes part of your dialogue. Instead of news, weather, and sports, it's how about the kingdom? How about the inbreaking of Jesus? Oh, looks like you got, you're walking with a limp. Can I, can I lay hands on you and pray for you? Well, I'm afraid. Well, we're going to have to deal with that one, aren't we? Because we need to be bold. We already talked about that in point three. Oh, looks like you've got a sick little girl there and, you know, how are you doing with that one? Oh, we're really worried she's going to die. Can I pray for her? Yes. And so you pray for her. You know, when we were in that same Indonesian revival, different island, but same trip, we went to this, we went to this town, and they were having a problem with, um, with the Islamic State. And we went and met with the mayor at his request. His name was Matthias. He was a, he was a good man. He was Catholic, but, but he, he clearly had a faith in Jesus. Um, but he, he wasn't quite familiar with all the things that we, you know, that we were doing. And he asked us to come and meet with him and pray with him. So I you know, brought a team, and my, my partner and I, we met with him and talked, had lunch. And then at the end, he said, would you, would you please pray for me? And so we laid our hands on him to pray for Matthias. And as we did, I said, um, you're having a problem with the Islamic State here. He said, oh, yeah, very much. And I said, you're concerned that they're more powerful than you are and that they may overthrow the government on this island. He said, very much. I said, 
the main cleric at that mosque down the street, I said, he's a younger man and he has a little girl. She's about three years old. He says, she is three years old. And I said, she's sick and he's worried about her. He said, yes, she is. I said, you take your two best men who are men of faith. Go down to that cleric and tell him you're there to pray for his daughter. Bring a vial of oil and anoint the girl. She will be healed. He did and she was, and that was the end of the Islamic State in Indonesia. <laughs> Disciples in action. Believers who are the boots on the ground of the kingdom of God. I'm deliberately staying off the language of army because some of the critics of all that the, the renewal is doing they don't like this language of army of God. They, they think it's militant. They think it's Christian nationalism. They think we mean guns, bullets, and blood, and we don't. So our language isn't always being very clear. So if you don't like it that I'm not saying we are the army of God, I'm choosing not to use that language. But I do want you to understand you are God's invasion force, and you are intended to bring this kind of kingdom power projection into the darkest corners of wherever you are sent. Let's keep going. We're almost done. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, this is very interesting because um, extraordinary miracles is actually the third stage of miraculous outbreak that, that the Lord would like to do. The first stage is when we... Um, are simply trying to get a few people healed of headaches and sore backs. And for those who have headaches and sore backs, that's pretty meaningful, but this is not what we would consider to be biblical class stuff. It's not what we'd say epic. But you've got to start somewhere. And so start there. But that's stage one. Stage two of a kingdom outpouring and outbreak is when miracles um, morph and they become, or excuse me, healings morph and they become miracles. Now, these aren't the same gift, and sometimes the miracles aren't even miracles of healing. There are miracles of healing where broken bones are instantly set or limbs grow out. James Maloney, he's with the Lord now, but he tells a story of being in a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, and while they were in the meeting, the worship was one of those nights like we had tonight, and everybody was caught up, and he's in the middle of worship, and all of a sudden, he feels himself leaving his body, and he lands in... He doesn't know where he is exactly, but he lands in this room filled with believers, and it's not the room he'd been in. And so he looks over to his left, and he sees a guy that he knows, a friend of his who's a missionary in Kazakhstan. And he looks at the people in the crowd, and he goes, I must be in Kazakhstan. Now, he thinks he's in a vision. But anyway, he looks at, he looks at his friend, and his friend um, says, let's, everybody who needs prayer come forward and, he, and this friend looks over at James and he says oh you join me in the praying and as James does this he senses Jesus standing by his side and there's something kind of like the Vulcan mind meld that goes on and he suddenly feels like Jesus is inside of him or he's inside of Jesus or something like that he can't quite define what it is and so the people start coming forward and they're praying for people and everyone's getting healed everyone's getting healed everyone's getting healed and then a woman comes up and she has no arms. And James Maloney lays hands on her. And her arms grow out. 
hands, arms, the whole thing. They just grow out of the sides of her body. Yuri was talking about believing God for this. Well, this woman literally has hands created, and all of a sudden, he's gone, and he's back in Atlanta. And he's going, that was the craziest thing that ever happened. Was that a vision? What was that? But he gets up, and he preaches, and he's, I'm like James in this regard. My phone's in flight mode right now. I can't get anything. And so he's, you know, he's not checking his phone. Anyway, the meeting ends. It's a powerful meeting. Praise the God. And he, uh, he goes back to his hotel room and he flicks, his, flicks on his phone. And there's a text from his friend in Kazakhstan. He goes, where did you go? I saw you and I saw that woman and her arms grew out and then you left the meeting. That's an extraordinary miracle. Okay, just to clarify what we're talking about. So we've got basic healing. We've got healing that becomes miraculous. It may not always be healing. It could be other things, water turned to wine, weather miracles, whatever. Okay, and then we've got this extraordinary stuff. That's what the Lord's doing through Paul. In this particular case, it deals with them taking away rags and cloths and aprons. And as they do this, you know, many are healed at distance. And so that's an extraordinary miracle. I was in China before things got really rough in China. And I was talking about this and some of the distant healings we'd seen. And we took a break, and everybody vanished. And I said to the pastor, where'd they go? Oh, they went out to the stores to buy, like, napkins and tablecloths and towels and bed sheets. And I said, why'd they do that? And they said, well, because they believed what you said. And so pretty soon they all come back, and they, they want me to lay hands on all these linens. And I said, well, look, if I'm doing it, you're doing it. So we, we throw it all down on the floor, and it's a pile it's, it's almost as wide as this platform. For sure, it's as wide as from that edge of the speaker to that edge. And it's, you know, kind of from the front end of that desk to, you know, here. It's, I mean, it's a pretty big pile. Because we've got several hundred people, and they cleaned all the shops out of everything. And so, you know, people are laying hands on these claws. I literally lay down on them. You know, I lay body on them. Forget about laying hands. And so we're doing all this, and then we pray over these cloths. And then they send them out all over China and we had over 600 people that confirmed their healing because they got one of those rags that came out of that meeting. Six over 600. So that's what level three breakthrough looks like, but there's a level beyond that. It's level four, and we'll look at it in just a second, but I'm going to leave you in suspense. But in the ninth stage of catalyzing regional outpourings, we start to see these extraordinary signs and wonders. And we should anticipate and look for that. We need to pray into it. We, we literally count on God to back the act at that level of confirmation. I know it's hard for us as Americans to do that, but I am telling you, it happens. I saw it in Indonesia. I've seen it in China. I've seen moments of it even in the United States, but they don't tend to be long. Because most of us Americans, one of the things we need to repent of is our intellectual superiority in being too cool for school. It's a real problem in the American church. All right, well, we're almost done here. So some of the Jewish uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists they start invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who have evil spirits because they see how effective this is. And of course, we are, well, in theory, we're talking about healing and deliverance, and that's, this is thematically with that. So I'm checking the box on the sermon. 
And so they begin invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who have evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. We don't know who he is. We sure don't believe in him, but it seems to have power. They think this is a talisman. That's the technical term for it. They think if they use that name, it'll be good enough. It's like the magic sauce. And the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I have heard about, but who are you? And it being an evil spirit, there's probably a word missing here. Who the are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and bleeding, naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. The word ran out. Both the Jews and the Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, and also many of those who were now believers. Note that these are believers. They came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts, black magic, they had books of conjuring, they had books of spells, they had amulets and tokens and idols and all manner of evil like this. They came, these are believers, but somehow they missed the message when they were converted, and so they're still living in that syncretistic thing that I mentioned last night. We need this to happen in Ohio. We need it to happen in Indiana. We need it to happen in Michigan and Illinois and Kentucky and everywhere else in America because we have believers who think they're believers, but they're doing this, and these guys are now turning from that, and they have a giant deliverance service, and that's why they make a bonfire and they burn all that stuff in order that those who are bound to those talismans, to those idols, to those books and scrolls, to those potions, that they would be set free from them right now. And Paul understood that. Most of the theologians, they go, oh, we're not sure, you know, it's a book burning. I don't know, it's kind of like the Nazi party. No, that's not what's going on here. Anybody who understands deliverance and moves in this understands it. There are times these demons are so entrenched that this is what you must do in order to get people free. And so that's what they do. So the tenth step, and we see it in this passage, is um, empty and corrupt religion is exposed. I'm telling you, the church in America is about to have its skirts lifted up over its face. By the way, I know that's kind of coarse and graphic, but it comes right out of the book of Malachi. And God adds to that, he will smear dung on her face. That's what Malachi said. You can look it up, fact check me on it. But the the church in America today is a paper tiger. That's why all this stuff that's going on is going on. Because pastors in pulpits across the land will not stand for the word of God. They will not preach the truth. They're afraid of what might happen. Pat and I were just at a doctoral seminar this week, and one of the guys in our seminar, he's a pastor from Oklahoma, and within his denomination, I won't name it, but within his denomination, they just installed 16 key leaders. Think of like a, a district superintendent or somebody like that. They installed 16 key leaders, every one of whom was pro-LGBT or practicing LGBT over that entire denomination. This is in one of the reddest states in America. That's what Oklahoma is. Do you think that the church in that denomination is going to continue to hold the line on biblical marriage or human sexuality? Not in that denomination, not in that state, and this is how things are being subverted. And all of that false religion, all of that corruption, all of that political agenda, God's going to do something about it. He did here. Because the church is going to rise and it's going to have a power within it. It's, it's a humble power, or it better be. It's going to be a power that's rooted in suffering. 
It's going to have a power that's rooted in, I have no strength in myself. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. All those lessons that Paul learned, they're all coming into focus here in, in Ephesus. But empty and corrupt religion will be exposed. And then the 11th step is, it says, the fear of God fell on them all. You know, when Joshua crossed the Jordan River, it says that the fear of the Lord went before him. And as a result, Jericho was shut up tightly against the coming of the Israelites. The terror of God had gone before them. Well, I don't know if it'll be terror. It could be. Or we might call it the terror when people are like, who are you? Finney had this happen when he would walk into factories. People would just collapse under the fear of the Lord because he carried such a presence within him. But God wants his people to be at that level. And so with it, it might be, we might call it the fear of the Lord, but it might simply be utter conviction. And with that, there'll be people who will push back and they'll say, we don't like you. You stand for something we don't believe in. When this happens, you should hold your head high and say, I'm being counted worthy to suffer for the name. Don't back up on that. The 12th step and last, these believers who come, they're going deeper. They're, they're getting rid of all the last remnants of all their old life, all the things that they haven't been willing or able to get free of. There's a breakthrough for them. And they, if you want to say it this way, they burn their bridges, no turning back. And so things go forward. And when all of this goes on, verse 20 so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is stage four breakthrough. I talked about stage three, those extraordinary miracles. Only rarely do we experience stage four breakthrough, and when it happens, it tends not to last for very long. But the word for warrior in Hebrew means one who treads his enemies underfoot like ash. And if you've ever been at a campfire or maybe had a fire ring in your backyard, you know what it looks like in the morning when the fire's burned away and there's still the shape of the log there. It may even still be a bit warm. And it looks just like a log, except it's kind of whitish gray. And you look at that thing and you kind of maybe kick it with your foot or you could step on it. And the whole thing just sort of crumbles beneath you. just Because everything has been burned away. That's stage four, and when that happens, it says the word of the Lord continued to increase. Well, where, I mean, if the, whole, if the whole region has heard the word of the Lord in two years, where do you go? Into the next region next door. And now we understand why Jesus held Paul back from going into Bithynia and going up towards Mysia when he tried to do that. He wanted to have that kind of power released through the believers as the revival begins to move into eastern Turkey. There was a man named Ramsey who wrote a book called Converting Rome. And he went through and he looked at all the secular sources as well as the biblical ones. And he documented that after Paul had finished his revival in Ephesus, as near as he was able to determine at 2,000 years distance based on whatever sources he was able to gin up, there were no sick people left anywhere in Turkey because of the ministry of the church. Evil spirits had been driven out and the gospel had become anchored in the culture, and all of the Roman gods had been put to flight. Artemis had been put to flight. Everything had converted. Paul had literally flipped the entire area on its head because of this outpouring based in the kingdom of God and its proclamation and this 12-step model that I've shown you. Now you know what you got to chase down and start to implement in order to see this kind of kingdom break out, and if you will do it, I believe the Lord will give it into your hand.
when we were in the Australian revival, at its peak, it was about now, well, nearly 12 years ago, at its peak. But um, it continued on for a while. But we saw things like this even in Western Australia. Westernized, like us, Australia. God broke through in that way. And we saw people converted. We saw people set free. We saw people delivered. And in the end, <clears throat> I'll tell you what caused that revival to peter out. Opposition from church leaders who were threatened. They said, this is too hot to handle. We don't know what to do with this. Our churches can't hold this many converts. We don't have space for them, so we better just, like, shut off the tap. You're not going to have that problem here, though. We've got ample surplus capacity of church space all through Ohio and the Midwest. You've got a leader who's fearless and bold and ready to do this. But these are the stages of catalyzing this kind of outpouring. Step one, new revelation. Step two, fresh anointing. Step three, be bold. Step four, be persuasive. Step five, stay on the kingdom. Step six, move on when you hit opposition. Step seven, dig deeply in order to train the disciples at a higher level or a deeper level. Step eight, utilize the disciples. Put them into motion. Don't expect the clergy to do all of it. Step nine, watch for signs and wonders to emerge, even at the level of extraordinary. Step 10, watch for empty and corrupt religion to be exposed. Step 11, watch for the fear of the Lord to fall over the territory. And step 12, watch for believers who are already brought in to go another layer deeper as they leave behind all that they have been living in that has held them back. Well, if you'll do these things, you too can have a regional outpouring and with God's grace, it might actually become a national outpouring. Why shouldn't it start in Ohio? Well, the last glimpse we have of Paul, he's in Rome. He's getting ready to die. And it's found in Acts chapter 28. Very few people go there and talk about it, but I'm going to do it for just a moment. In Acts chapter 28, as I said, Paul's under house arrest. He's getting ready to die. And as he's preaching to the believers in Rome, Paul is still preaching the kingdom of God. Acts uh, chapter 28, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed king, with all boldness and without hindrance. Before he had come to Rome, before this, what you just heard, happened, he'd written to the Roman church in the book of Romans, chapter 15, and he said to them that it had always been his desire to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, to preach the good news of a new king. And he said, in the power of signs and wonders, and so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
This is what it means to fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. It's an all-in thing. It won't cost you much monetarily, but it'll cost you everything in terms of your life, your commitments, your attention, your hobbies, everything. And he's worth it. He's worth it. At least we say he is. And so the summons that the Lord is putting out is, who will be the laborers in my harvest field? Who will go for me? Well, the offer is on the table, and if you want to be one of those who is activated, who receives impartation in order to carry out this mandate at this time, in this country, in this state, in this county, and beyond, I want you to come up now because the Lord's going to fill you with his spirit and give you the wherewithal to do this.